Welcome to the second Theology on Tap session of the summer. Uh, our series theme for this summer's Theology on Tap is the mystical body and the sacraments. Uh, and we have a very, uh, very special Theology on Tap scheduled for tonight. We have our very own Bishop, uh, Kevin Rhodes, who will be talking about, whose topic will be uh, called, This is My Body, The Real Presence and Eucharistic Miracles. A uh, little about our speaker tonight, Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes is the ninth bishop of the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. He was ordained a priest in 1983, ordained the Bishop of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 2004, and was installed as our bishop in 2010. Bishop Rhodes served as a professor and then rector of Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland from 1995 to 2004. He serves as chairman of the Committee on Doctrine for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And with that, Bishop Rhodes, thank you. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be with you tonight. And um, I said to Sean earlier that usually I'm invited uh, to Theology on Tap, and they always give me a tough topic, like a controversial moral issue. Like, this is so nice tonight. I can come and talk about the Holy Eucharist. And then we had uh, my work with the Committee on Doctrine on the Eucharist became a national controversy regarding reception of Holy Communion. Now that happened after I was given the topic. I said, I don't know. And then we have Pope Francis and his decision about the Latin Mass. So now another controversial thing. So I thought I was coming tonight uh, free of controversy. But, um, but the Eucharist is so important. It's the center of our life as Catholics. And it really is a joy for me to speak on this topic. By way, before I talk about Eucharistic miracles, um, a little bit about our work in the Committee on Doctrine. I'll be going to Rome in a few weeks to meet with Cardinal Ladaria, the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, with a draft of our document, because it's become so controversial that it's important that I be in close communication with the Vatican and Cardinal Ladaria, um, so that he understands what we are preparing and uh, why we are preparing the uh, document that, that we're doing. Uh, the controversy, as you probably have seen in the media, has began with the idea of, uh, about President Biden being a Catholic and having some positions on fundamental moral issues, especially abortion, but also marriage, that are at odds with the teaching of the church. So the question about his receiving Holy Communion when he has executive orders or promotes legislation that uh, promotes abortion or uh, same-sex marriage and other things, there's an inconsistency there. Because as Catholics, when we go to Holy Communion, it's kind of a sign that we believe in the you know, the uh, fundamental teachings of the church. Now, our document is not about President Joe Biden, but that's what it seems like from the media. To be honest, the U.S. bishops, we're involved and have embarked on a uh, project for that we call a Eucharistic revival in the United States. And I'm on that um group that is uh, leading this Eucharistic revival. And we will have activities on the diocesan level, in the parishes, and ultimately a big national gathering. This will take place in the next three years. One year will be focused on dioceses, another year on parishes, another year on will be more on a national level. The whole point of this is to promote faith in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And we are preparing a document that hopefully will be a beautiful theological 
uh, presentation of, of what the Eucharist is. That it is a mystery to be believed. It's a mystery to be celebrated. Celebrated with devotion and reverence. So we're hoping that this will lead to more, a deeper faith in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and also the truth about the Eucharist as Christ's sacrifice that becomes present for us at every mass on the altar. Fundamental beliefs of our Catholic religion. And hopefully it will lead more people to see the importance of going to mass and to be uh, and to participate actively in the celebration of mass and to try to make sure that the liturgies that we celebrate are celebrated with devotion, that there's beauty in the music and the art, the architecture, everything. And the third part of the document is the Eucharist as a mystery to be lived. That's the controversial part because to live the Eucharist, what is the Eucharist? It's Christ's gift of himself, his body broken for us, his total gift of self-giving love, his blood poured out for us. So in receiving the Eucharist, we should be transformed. The Eucharist strengthens us and nourishes us to live lives of self-giving love. In other words, to imitate Jesus. The Eucharist commits us to the poor. The Eucharist commits us to the unborn. The Eucharist commits us to living Christ's command to love one another as he has loved us. It's the sacrament of charity, the sacrament of love. And of course, we need to be properly disposed to receive Holy Communion. We must be in the state of grace. And therefore, if we've committed a mortal sin, we should not receive Holy Communion until we have first gone to the sacrament of reconciliation. There has to be repentance. Some who criticize the fact that we're gonna be tackling this issue say, well, no one's worthy to receive Holy Communion. Well, that's true. None of us is worthy. We say we're not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Say but the word and my soul shall be healed. But we have to be in the state of grace. Otherwise, it's sacrilegious to go to communion. Okay? St. Paul in his letter, first letter to the Corinthians said that, you know, writes about uh, not going up, not receiving the Eucharist unless one is uh, part of the body and united in communion with the church. So that's something about, that's not the topic of my talk, so I better watch. Uh, that's just by way of introduction. But since it's in the news, I thought I would uh, talk to you about it. And please pray that, that, um, that this goes well. And basically, I'll need two-thirds vote in favor of the document when I present it to the whole body of bishops in November. Our Committee on Doctrines working hard on it. They can do amendments to it. The, the body of bishops, if they bishops vote, like could strike something that we write. So in the end, it's not a won't be a document of the Doctrine Committee. It will be a document of the U.S. bishops that was prepared, at least the draft, by the Committee on Doctrine. Now, Eucharistic miracles are God's extraordinary interventions that are meant to confirm faith in the real presence of the body and blood of the Lord in the Eucharist. And of course, Catholic teaching on the real presence is very important. And it's surprising to me sometimes, I've talked to people about this and every now and then, Someone will say to me, well, Bishop, I just thought it was a symbol. I had a woman who wrote to me in her 40s. And she wrote to me and said, Bishop, I never knew 
that this was the real body and blood of Jesus. I thought it just was a symbol of Jesus. She's been receiving the Eucharist all these years. I don't know what kind of catechesis she received, uh, but obviously it wasn't good. Um, and now she does believe, and she goes to Eucharistic adoration. And all, this was just a few weeks ago. Um, with the words of consecration, this is my body, this is my blood, the substance of bread and wine become the substance of Christ's body and blood. So we use this philosophical language, um, really comes from Aristotle and the scholastic theologians of the Middle Ages to express the mystery. The words are words. The mystery is really beyond words. This is kind of like the best way that philosophically that we can talk about the Eucharistic change. When we talk about the substance of a thing, don't think it's not the notion of chemical substance. We're talking about the essential reality of a thing, the essential reality, what it is. Um, so you have the substance. So we speak of the substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist. At Mass, we speak of how Christ is present in the assembly. Christ is present in the Word, the Scriptures, the Word that is proclaimed and preached. But when we speak about Christ's presence under the forms of bread and wine, it's a different kind of presence. We can call, use that word substantial presence. We don't have that in the other sacraments, by the way, that kind of presence. That's why the Eucharist is a sacrament par excellence. It's the greatest of the sacraments. The actual substance of the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. So the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And Christ is totally present under the form of bread, and under the form of wine. So there are some people who may not be able to receive the sacred host because of celiac disease. Now, a lot can because we have the low gluten hosts, but let's say they can't. Well, then they should receive the precious blood. They receive the whole Christ. The whole Christ is present under the species of bread and under the species of wine. The um, philosophical term for the species is accidents. The accidents remain as before. The accidents of bread and wine. It's the substance that changes. So by the accidents, it still looks like bread and wine, still tastes like bread and wine, but substantially, it's not bread and wine. So it's incorrect. Someone will say sometimes, uh, like an extraordinary minister, um, Bishop, I'll distribute the wine, or I'm happy to distribute the wine today. I said, no, no. You're distributing the, the blood of Christ. We no longer speak of it. And some Christians believe that the substance of, believe that it's the substance, truly the body and blood of Christ, but they think it's also truly bread and wine. That's not a Catholic view. No, the substance has changed. It just has the appearance of bread and wine. So this is central to our faith. Now, when we have a Eucharistic miracle, oh, by the way, and the change itself, the marvelous change is called transubstantiation. Okay, transubstantiation. Um, so the accidents remain, but so you have the, the same color, the same taste, the same smell, even the same nutritional value, but the substance, the true reality of bread and wine does not remain. It's become the body and blood of the Lord. We cannot experience transubstantiation with our senses. 
we can't see the change. We can't smell it. We can't um, touch it. But we can't. But faith, it's faith that assures us of this marvelous change. Faith based on the words of Jesus himself that we believe when he instituted the Eucharist. And the words that he said in the great Eucharistic bread of life discourse in chapter six of John's gospel, which actually we just began uh, this past Sunday. And the next five weeks, we'll have a continuous reading of the bread of life discourse. Unfortunately, I love the Feast of the Assumption, but the Feast of the Assumption falls August 15th on a Sunday this year. So we're gonna miss one part of the bread of life discourse because the assumption readings will be used. Anyhow, medieval theologians carefully examined the matter of Eucharistic miracles, which were a little more frequent in the Middle Ages, although there are modern Eucharistic miracles. And I think the best explanation of a Eucharistic miracle was given by the angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas. And he says that the body and blood which appear after a miracle are due to the transformation of the Eucharistic species, the accidents. So there's different kinds of Eucharistic miracles, but the most frequent would be when the host becomes human flesh or the wine becomes human blood or blood comes from the host. Those are some of the Eucharistic miracles that have been documented. So what St. Thomas Aquinas says is that what happens in the miracles, the species, the accidents are transformed, but not the true substance of the body and blood of Jesus, because that's already there, okay? In other words, the species of bread and wine are miraculously changed into the species of flesh and blood. But the true body and blood of Jesus are not those which appear, but those which were hidden even before the miracle beneath the species of bread and wine. Um, if it were actually the true flesh and blood of Christ, we'd have to say that the risen Christ, who is, reigns at the right hand of the Father, is losing part of his flesh and blood. That's not, that doesn't happen. We can't say that. So the flesh and blood which appear in the miracles are in the order of species or appearances. Um, so let's, let me talk a little bit more about um, uh, the limits of Eucharistic miracles. I want to say, first of all, the greatest miracle is what you experience at every Mass. Every celebration of the Eucharist is a miracle. I mean, there's the transformation. The Eucharistic change is a miracle. Um, but these specific Eucharistic miracles that we're gonna talk about, our faith is not founded on the Eucharistic miracles. Our faith is founded on the proclamation of Jesus that we receive through faith, through the action of the Holy Spirit. We believe because we've believed in the preaching. We believe in the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. Believing is an act of the intellect, which is under the influence of the will, is moved by God through grace. And we consent to the truth revealed to us by God. We can apply this to any article of the faith. Our faith in the Eucharist has its center in Christ, who during his preaching foretold the institution of the Eucharist and then in fact instituted it during the Last Supper with his apostles on Holy Thursday. And ever since then, the church has been faithful to the command of the Lord. Do this in memory of me. With great faith, 
The church celebrates the Eucharist, especially on Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection. And we will continue to do so until he comes again. A Christian, someone asked me once if a Christian or Catholic is obliged to believe in Marian apparitions that have been approved by the church, like Guadalupe and Fatima and Lourdes. And I say, no, you're not obliged to believe those. Most Catholics do. The church has approved these apparitions as worthy of belief, has all the signs of truth, but it's not essential. It's a private revelation. And it's the same thing with Eucharistic miracles. They don't bind the faithful to believe in them, even though the church has officially recognized many of these Eucharistic miracles. We're still free. It's up to, our, uh, to make up our own mind. No Christian is to, obliged to believe in any private revelation. What we're obliged to believe is public revelation, which I'll talk about in a minute. Now, we should not exclude the possibility that God can intervene in extraordinary ways like this. Um, and you have, the church is very careful in discerning whether in a specific case, there's an authentic, extraordinary intervention of God. So you know when someone reports any kind of a miracle, you know, like the miracles required for the canonization of a saint. There is intense scrutiny. There has to be no scientific explanation, no natural explanation. Marian apparitions, healings, and Eucharistic miracles, it's all the same. And the church is always very cautious and very prudent when there are these extraordinary phenomena. Because you don't want to fall for a hoax, sometimes it could be something that's merely in somebody's mind, an illusion, whatever. So when the church approves something as worthy of belief, a miracle, um, first of all, it has to have nothing that contradicts faith and morals. And the church um, says, okay, this is something that there can be public devotion. Um, again, the, um, no one's obliged to believe, but the church has authorized devotion public devotion. Now, why even have these extraordinary things? I mean, we can ask the Lord, but they help us to go beyond the visible, the perceptible, and to recognize and admit the existence of something beyond. Um, so the Eucharistic miracles that have been approved by the church, there's been no way to explain them on the basis of science. It go, these miracles go beyond human reason. There's no natural explanation. And in some cases, it brings people to perhaps believe in the public revelation. I mean, maybe someone who doesn't believe by faith in the real presence sees evidence of a Eucharistic miracle and that can bring them to faith. A word about public revelation, um, which is what we have to believe, that's part of uh, being Catholic. It's something that God has revealed. Public revelation progressively uh, disclosed by God, beginning with Abraham through the prophets all the way up to, to Jesus. Um, public revelation is attested to in both the Old and the New Testaments. Public revelation is meant for everyone. It's public. It's not private. And it ended with Christ and the death of the last apostle. The church is bound to that revelation. There's no new public revelation after the death of the last apostle. 
You might say, well, why is that? Well, because Jesus Christ is the mediator and the fullness of revelation. He's the fullness of revelation. Being the only begotten son of God, made man, he is the perfect and definitive word of the father. In the sending of the son and the gift of the Holy Spirit, revelation is now fully complete. Although the faith of the church must gradually grasp its full significance over the course of centuries. That's tradition. Our growing in understanding of the mysteries that have been revealed. God spoke even in the, uh, through the prophets, various ways, in partial ways, but his full revelation is in the Word, capital W, the second person of the Trinity, the Word who became flesh. And in him, the God speaks and gives everything. There's no other word than that. He's told us everything in Jesus. Now, I don't wanna, let me move, because I have to watch the time. Um, I think that's really important whenever we talk about things like Eucharistic miracles. Um, Again, the most astounding, most important miracle is the one that takes place whenever the Eucharist is celebrated. When Christ becomes present in a unique and incomparable way. He's present in a real and substantial way with his body and blood, with his soul and divinity. He's present in a sacramental way under the species of bread and wine. The whole Christ is present, God and man. He becomes our food and drink, uniting us to him and to each other. So with that background, let's look at, um, and I can't, I mean, there are a lot of Eucharistic miracles, over a hundred that have been documented. And you probably have heard about um, the young, the teenager, who was beatified, what, two years ago now? Blessed Carlo Acutis. He documented Eucharistic miracles around the world. He studied them, he documented them, and he cataloged them onto a website that he created. This kid, amazing. And that website with all these documented Eucharistic miracles became a traveling photo exhibit. And that photo exhibit has been in our diocese. I don't know where it was in South Bend, but I'm sure it was in one of the parishes or a couple of the parishes here. Well, I'm not gonna talk about 150 Eucharistic miracles tonight. I'm just gonna talk about a few of the most famous ones. And the first really famous Eucharistic miracle was in Lanciano, Italy. Lanciano, you may have heard of it, or you may have been there. From the eighth century. So we're going back to the first millennium. And in this city, in a little church, a monk who was a priest, a Basilian monk, had doubts about our Lord's real presence in the Eucharist. And during Mass, after he consecrated the bread and the wine, the host was changed into live flesh and the wine was changed into live blood. And the blood coagulated into five globules in different shapes and sizes. You can see this flesh today. Kind of amazing. And the blood that's coagulated. There have been a number of investigations by the church, going back, especially in the 1970s and 1980s, they got one of the most illustrious scientists in Italy. 
He was a professor in anatomy and pathological history and chemistry and uh, assisted by other professors. And they did a, uh, an analysis with great scientific precision and they took microscopic photographs. What did the analysis show? The flesh is real flesh and the blood is real blood. From the eighth century. And it's human flesh and human blood. As a matter of fact, the flesh consists of the muscular tissue of the heart. And um, the flesh and blood have the same blood type, AB. By the way, same blood type in the Shroud of Turin. Various minerals, I'm not gonna get into all the, the details, but that flesh and blood have been preserved in their natural state for 12 centuries. Now, it's been exposed to the atmosphere, et cetera, still there. So if you ever get to Italy and you want to do, go and see some of these um, places, uh, put Lanciano on your itinerary. Another um, uh, famous one, and one I'm more familiar with because I've been to see it, is in Orvieto. Um, if you ever are on a pilgrimage to Italy, I recommend a day in Orvieto. It's only like an hour outside of Rome. But the miracle actually took place in a town called Bolsena in the 13th century. In the year 1263, a German priest named Peter of Prague stopped in Bolsena while on a pilgrimage to Rome. And he was evidently a pious priest, but he was having difficulty believing that Christ was actually present in the consecrated host. How difficult that is when you have a priest who's doubting, you know, celebrating mass. And while he was celebrating mass, he had stopped in Bolsena. It was an altar above the tomb of St. Christina. Uh, it's the church of St. Christina. And he had barely spoken the words of consecration when blood started to seep from the consecrated host, trickle over his hands, onto the altar, and onto the corporal. The corporal's the cloth that we celebrate Mass on. So if you see when the priest is preparing the altar or the deacon, they put this piece of cloth under where the paten and chalice are going to be. The reason for that is if any particles or drops would fall, it would go on the corporal and we would, in that case, we always, we always wash the corporal in the sacrarium, in the sacristy, not a normal sink. We clean the corporals in the sacrarium, which goes down directly into the ground. So anyhow, um, this priest experienced this and he was confused, uh, you can imagine. Um, he stopped mass, he, he was just like beside himself. And Pope Urban IV at that time was residing in Orvieto. Orvieto is about 21 kilometers from Bolsena. So this priest, Father Peter of Prague, goes to see the Pope and the Pope listened to his account. And I guess he went to Peter went to confession because of his doubts and the Pope absolved him. So the Pope sent emissaries or representatives to investigate. And they ascertained all the facts and the Pope ordered the Bishop of the diocese to bring uh, to Orvieto the host and the corporal that had the stains of blood. And then they had this big procession and the Pope met the procession, a lot of ceremony and the relics were placed in the cathedral of Orvieto. So the corporal, linen corporal, with the spots of blood is enshrined and exhibited in the cathedral of Orvieto. 
Now, it's only brought out for public view on special occasions, but it's still a great place to go. After that miracle, about a year later, Pope Urban IV asked St. Thomas Aquinas to compose the Mass of Corpus Christi and the office, the Liturgy of the Hours, for the Feast of Corpus Christi, and which had just been instituted. Um, so things like the Tantomergo and the Pange Lingua, all the O Sacrum Convivium, I think, all those beautiful Eucharistic hymns that we sing were composed by Thomas Aquinas at the request of Pope Urban IV after this miracle in Bolsena and, and Orvieto. So many pilgrims will go to Bolsena, to St. Christina's Church, to see where the miracle occurred. Um, and they'll also go, go to Orvieto uh, to see the actual corporal, which is enshrined in the cathedral there. Um, popes have gone there. and uh, There's a famous painting, by the way, if you're ever uh, touring the Vatican in the Apostolic Palace, they're what's called the Raphael Rooms. And Raphael painted a fresco of the mass at Bolsena. It's a very famous painting, a very famous fresco about of that Eucharistic miracle. Now I'm gonna plug World Youth Day in 2023. I hope some of you will join me. It's in Lisbon. And before we have, um, we go to World Youth Day, I always take, or almost always take the youth and young adults on a few days a pilgrimage tour to, to places nearby, and then end up at, at the site, like Krakow, we were Madrid, et cetera. Well, a few days before we go to Lisbon for actual World Youth Day, I wanna take the group to Fatima, of course, probably Coimbra, where Sister Lucia lived, but I wanna take them to a site of a Eucharistic miracle. So if you wanna see the site of a Eucharistic miracle, come to World Youth Day, with the diocese in 2023. It's the miracle of Santarem. Santarem is not that far from Lisbon. And it's, um, again, another one where they've done a lot of analysis, psych, uh, scientific analysis. The host changed into bleeding flesh and blood flowed out of the host. Um, and those relics are preserved in the church of St. Stephen in Santarem. It's a kind of a strange story how this um, happened. Um, the king of Portugal had it investigated back in, um, uh, in the 14th century, but it had taken place in the 13th century in this town, Santarem. A young woman was filled with jealousy for her husband, and she consulted a sorceress believe it or not, who told her to go to the church and to steal a consecrated host to use for a love potion. The woman stole the host and she hid it in a linen cloth that immediately became stained with blood. It frightened her, she ran home. She opened it, see what happened. She saw the blood gushing from the host. She was very confused. She put it in a drawer in her bedroom. And that night, rays of light emitted from the drawer. It made the room look like it was daytime. And the husband saw it. He was aware of this and questioned her and she told him everything. And the next day they told the priest, he went to the home to remove the host, return it to the church of St. Stephen. They had this big procession and the host bled for three consecutive days. It was then placed in a beautiful reliquary. Um, again, this has been scientifically investigated. I think, let me just check the time. Can't find the schedule. It's 7.45, am I already over time? 
Couple more minutes, okay? Okay. I'll just finish with a contemporary Eucharistic miracle. In the 1990s, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, Pope Francis, at that time, was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires. So this happened under his, while he was the Bishop of the Diocese. And 1996, Archbishop Bergoglio, okay, there was a church in Buenos Aires, it was August 18th, and in the evening, a woman parishioner told her pastor, or the priest, that a consecrated host had been desecrated. She had found it in the church. Um, and what happens if that, when, when something like that happens? A priest is to put the host in a glass of water and put it in the tabernacle and wait for it to dissolve. Because when it's no longer the species of bread, it's no longer the real presence. So that's what, what's to be done. Anyhow, uh, that's what he did and it wouldn't dissolve. Um, he opened the uh, tabernacle a week later and what did he find? A piece of bloody tissue, much larger than the original host. He informed Archbishop Bergoglio, future Pope Francis, and Archbishop Bergoglio said, please take photographs of it, which he did, the priest did. And he just said, just keep it there in the tabernacle. They, they didn't even publicize it. He didn't want to publicize. Three years later, the bloody tissue had not decomposed, which is extraordinary because naturally, how do you explain that? It's in water, it should decompose. Uh, so at that point, three years later, Archbishop Bergoglio asked that the bloody tissue be scientifically examined. So they got scientists um, who took a sample of the bloody fragment and sent it to New York for analysis. Um, and they didn't want to prejudice the scientific community who'd be examining the tissue in New York. So they didn't reveal its source. They didn't say, well, this was, came, was a host. So in, they had five scientists who examined it, including a very famous cardiologist and forensic pathologist who wrote a lot of books on forensic pathology, Dr. Frederick Zugibe. And Dr. Zubigay testified that the analyzed material is a fragment of the heart muscle found in the wall of the left ventricle, close to the valves. It's the muscle responsible for the contraction of the heart. Um, it should be borne in mind, this doctor said, that the left cardiac ventricle pumps blood to all parts of the body. The heart muscle, he said, is in an inflammatory condition and contains a large number of white blood cells. This indicate that the heart was alive at the time that the sample was taken. It's my contention, the doctor said. Now again, he didn't know this came from a host. He said, it's my contention that the heart was alive since white blood, white blood vessels, I'm sorry, since white blood cells die outside a living organism. They require a living organism to sustain them. Thus, their presence indicates that the heart was alive when the sample was taken. What is more, these white blood cells had penetrated the tissue, which further indicates that the heart had been under severe stress as if the owner had been beaten severely above the chest. So the wall of the left ventricle, white blood cells, large numbers, required the tissue be removed when the heart was still alive and pumping. So how can this be a fraud? By the way, what was the blood type? AB. Same as the other miracle, same as the Shroud of Turin. How did a non-D 
decomposing cardiac muscle tissue uh, from the wall of the left ventricle with significant numbers of white blood cells make its way into the glass inside the tabernacle where the desecrated host had been stored in secret by the priest. There's no explanation. Thank you, everybody. Before we get into the kind of traditional uh, Q&A, I noticed uh, that uh, the bishop's first uh, discussion question that he posed to you, uh, number one, what advice or suggestions would you give to Bishop Rhodes and the USCCB Committee on Doctrine regarding the content of the Eucharist document they are preparing? So before we dive into the Q&A, uh, I think the bishop would love to hear uh, from, from a few folks uh, about uh, their thoughts and their advice. Uh, you have the ear of your bishop. Uh, thanks, Bishop, for coming. I appreciate you making it all the way out to our side of the diocese. Um, yeah, the advice or feedback that I, I would give would be um, after crafting and writing it, because I would imagine it would be you know several pages, if you could have either some kind of like summary or short version that's like three to five minutes, that's very digestible, that you could give to your priest to share in their Sunday homilies, I think that would be extremely beneficial. Um, maybe it's because our culture and generations have lower attention spans, but I think that um, probably the target audience that you want hearts to be changed by the document um, probably will not be the ones reading it, whereas the people who are reading it are probably like the most on fire and wanting to learn more. Um, so I think being able to share that with your priests and having them share that to their parishioners and hopefully them taking that to heart that, you know, if they have, uh, you know, parishioners that want to evangelize and reach out to others, that they're able to then either apply that personally or, you know, share it to who they know. Um, I guess that would be my biggest advice would be um, just having like an, a digestible, digestible summary to go with it to pass on to others. Thank you. I think that's an excellent suggestion. I don't know yet how long the document will be, but I think it will probably be longer than what you're suggesting. So I think that's just knowing, um, you know, as we're working on it already. So I think that's an excellent suggestion. Thank you. Thank you, Bishop, for your talk and for coming. We're really grateful. Um, I think the document could use a, a preface or something on the Sacrament of Reconciliation and the necessity of, as you said, being in a state of grace to receive the Eucharist. And maybe along with that, a kind of injunction to priests um, that if they're only hearing confessions for half an hour on Saturdays, they can be pretty sure that most of the people in the communion line have not been to confession, and that uh, we should enjoin the faithful to receive that sacrament of, of penance, but also of priests to be more generous, uh, broadly speaking, in confession, in offering confession times in evenings or uh, times when the faithful can take more advantage of it. Great suggestions. I agree. I've asked our priests to think outside the box and offer confessions more frequently, not just for an hour on Saturday afternoons. Some have, uh, you know, done that, others haven't, but I can only strongly recommend. But I think it's really important. I agree with you um, on that. So I do think we have to talk a little bit about the Sacrament of Reconciliation in the document. I think it's essential, so thanks. Thank you very much for coming and talking to us, uh, Bishop Rhodes. I just wanted to say, uh, when we were speaking in our small group, that the majority of us agreed that, uh, kind of going along with what this young man said, 
if you gave a kind of like a too lazy didn't read <laughs> at the end, uh, but also not being vague. So putting it in black and white at the very end to where if people wanted to dissect every word you said and uh, try and leave it up to inter interpretation, um, don't let them do it. So. That, I agree with that. My one worry is that will it be amended or watered down a bit or made more vague when it comes to the general discussion, which will need the two thirds? I hope not. But I, so thank you for that suggestion. And I'm sure the bishop would welcome uh, more feedback, but also any other questions about his talk or, or whatever's on your mind. Uh, if anybody has a, a question or a thought to share, you can raise your hand. So. Um, we were talking in our small group about how this document seems or appears to be more politically motivated than theologically motivated. Um, and especially how it seems to target one side because of one or two hot button issues, but tends to ignore the other side that also supports some pretty egregious moral positions that, that don't get as much publicity. Good comment, good question. I think the narrative in the media has presented it about one issue or just politicians. Whereas, because that's what has sold, that's what sells papers and, and coverage. It's all been centered on President Biden and the abortion issue. Um, it was never our intention to have it that narrow. This is going to be for all Catholics, obviously those in leadership positions, not just leaders in government, but Catholic leaders in healthcare, in education, in the entertainment industry, all of them who are publicly uh, pro professing and proclaiming that they're Catholic do have a special duty to witness to the faith, I think. Because when they don't, they create more scandal, like the President of the United States. That's the issue, is scandal. Uh, but there, you are correct, I agree with you, uh, there are other intrinsic evils. I use two other, when I've given press conferences on this, when it was a really hot topic, I gave two examples um, that are, I said, a Catholic who is involved as a, you know, in, in uh, human trafficking, and well known that he's involved with human trafficking. Um, it's kind of like the mafia in Italy which they're not, I mean, the Pope has said they shouldn't be going to communion. Um, you know, human trafficking is another issue. Another one that has come up is racism. If someone's a leader of a white supremacist group promoting harm to African-Americans, they should be denied communion. So, um, you know, so I, there are other issues. Now, how specific we're gonna get on issues you know, we talked about being very clear in it. I, I think we're going to talk in more general terms. In the end, it's up to the individual bishop, by the way. In other words, the USCCB or me or the doctrine committee, we have no say about President Biden. I mean, for example, as far as not admitting someone to Holy Communion, I'm only responsible for my own diocese. I have no jurisdiction outside the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend on the discipline about the Eucharist. So really, it's up to Joe Biden's bishop, you know? So I think that's another misunderstanding that's out there. So, so we're not gonna be saying that in the document because we have to follow canon law. Um, canon law says, there's two canons, 915 and 916. 916 is the one about being in the state of grace. That one who's conscious of having committed mortal sin should not go to communion um, unless they've first gone to confession. That's always been the case. That's canon 916. The controversial canon is 915, which says that one is not to be admitted to Holy Communion 
who has been excommunicated under interdict or who obstinately persists in manifest grave sin. So there's a lot of things to consider there. Obstinately persists in manifest public grave sin. We're not making a judgment of that person's being in a state of mortal sin, objectively. I mean, subjectively. This is an objective canon, canon 915. So if you have, let's say, a white supremacist leader or one involved in uh, organizing crime, like human trafficking, and they're not repentant, they're doing it, it's publicly known, they go up and receive communion, that causes scandal. I mean, can you imagine a, 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 you know, a Ku Klux Klan wizard saying, I'm going up to communion? Should we allow that? Church has never allowed that kind of public sin sinner to receive communion. They may say, well, in my conscience, this is okay. Well, it doesn't, okay, we can't judge anyone's heart. Only God judges the inside. But objectively speaking, you know, there are certain things, and that's where the debate comes, someone who continues to promote abortion. Pro-choice politicians are one thing. I think where you go a step further is actually material, materially and formally cooperating in a grave evil, like paying for it, which is one of the things that are happening. We have Catholics who are, uh, you know, providing funding for women to have abortions. That's very close, and that's one of the executive orders of the president. So those are some of the problematic things, um, and people are scandalized by it. But we're not gonna get that specific in the document, I can tell you that, because it's just impossible. I mean, um, you know, to get into every potential issue. Okay, hopefully that helps. Any other questions? Bishop, what does it mean for the doctrine, uh, the Committee on Doctrine to put out a document? Like, doctrine doesn't change from Polycarp and Ignatius of Antioch to Bishop Kevin Rhodes. And what does it mean for the USCCB specifically to put out a document that, you know, doesn't have the, I mean, it might have an imprimatur from any given bishop, but it doesn't have like the, the seal of the whole magisterium of the church. What, what does that actually look like and what effect does it have on individual parishes and individuals in, right. in town? Well, we're going to be coming out with a document in September on uh, gender dysphoria and uh, Catholic health care. That's a document from the Committee on Doctrine. And it doesn't have the level of authority of a Vatican document or even of the whole USCCB. This is our committee. Now, we always consult with the Vatican congregation for the doctrine of the faith. So they know what we're gonna say. So we have kind of a green light because we always have to teach in communion with the Pope. Its level of authority though, it's, it's basically articulating for our particular situation here, what is the perennial teaching of the church? And um, in this case, it has to do with what will be permitted or not permitted in Catholic healthcare facilities in the United States. Um, it's gonna be on one of the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare. Uh, the document on the Eucharist is one that will come from the US bishops, not from the doctrine committee. So it will have a higher level of authority. It's the whole body of bishops at least two thirds have to vote in favor of it for it to be promulgated. But again, I will be going to Rome. I will make sure that everything that's in it, you know, if, if, if Cardinal Ladaria and the Congregation for Doctrine of Faith have a problem with it, we would have to change it. So there's always that communio, that's all, there's always that communion. There's not anything new, so to speak. Even in talking about Canon 915 and Canon 916, that's the universal law of the church. That's nothing new. What we're doing is giving like a theological explanation of that uh, discipline. 
Um, and we'll be relying on church documents, what the popes have said, what the Second Vatican Council has said, what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. So it's not new in that sense. It's just dealing with particular issues in the context and in the situation where we're living in the United States. Why don't we finish with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, everybody. Take care.